The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Ezekiel chapter 8, and uh, we will be in our eighth week study, uh, eight, week 8 of our study, rather, of the book of Ezekiel, Glory Ravaged, Glory Restored, When God Leaves the Building. No, not Elvis, When God Leaves the Building, Ezekiel chapter 8. Special welcome to those on Facebook who are watching us live. Uh, we pray you find a church home, if not with us, somewhere where you can worship locally as it is. And uh, as we continue our study, I want to just remind you that this study of Ezekiel's chapter by chapter leading up through uh, Easter, because after going through the book of Ezekiel, we all need to be reminded of what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. And I promise you, uh, it gets worse before it gets better, but Jesus always well, the Sunday school answer is life's true answer. Jesus is all we need, and that is very, very true. All I have is Christ. Well, I think I've shared this before, but this is such a good one. I love it. You could say four pastors or four priests, but in this case, four priests, you may have heard this story, were met for a friendly gathering, and during one conversation, one priest said to another, our people come to us and pour out their lives and their sins. Let's do that to each other. Let's confess because it's good for the soul. I'll start first. And he confessed that he liked to go to movies and sneak off away when church was over to go to the silver screen. The second priest said, I like to smoke cigars. And the third one said, I like to play cards. The fourth one was silent for a while, and he said, I'm not going to confess anything. And the other said to him, well, what are you waiting on? We've told you our vices and our sins. Why won't you tell us what you do no one else knows about? And he said, the fourth priest, well, my sin is gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here and tell everybody else. So <laughs> we all have our idols, don't we? We all have our idols. And one idol in particular that we have, and I think it's very true, and this is true of any uh, denomination, any group, is that at every turn we all have secret idolatry. This threat that we're going to read about in Ezekiel 8 and that Paul warned the church about in Ephesians and Colossians is something that we all struggle with because we all have, as we say in the secular world, skeletons in our closet. And this is a reminder, as Taylor read for us in 1 John 5, 21, as you'll see on the screen. If you like to memorize verses, this is one, two, three, four, five, six words. You got this down. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that dominates your life publicly or privately. An idol is the most important thing to you. It's your ruling passion, as one theologian put it. Idolatry is not just worshiping something made of stone or wood or bronze. It is putting something more important than God in front of your life. And it's serious business because Ezekiel is going to be confronted with the lives of people he trusted and thought he knew to the point that he's going to be ashamed that he even knew them. God never takes idolatry lightly in our lives today, and he didn't back then as well. When we see our culture's idolatry, what do we do? Do we run from it in fear, or do we run towards it in love? And are we still willing and ready to go wherever God calls us or our idols, whatever those may be, holding us back to serve 
where we are. And I would argue one of the greatest idols we have in America is comfort. How do you know that? We have comfort food, don't we? Um, I took my wife on Valentine's Day after she had a procedure to Golden Corral, Barry Road, our ambassador. We thought we were high kicking with the 75-plus the, uh, the, the crowd at lunch. We were going well. Comfort food abounding. And, uh, but comfort's a real idol for Americans. We don't like to get out of our comfort zone. What is your idol? I don't know. But one thing this, thing this passage will confront us with is, is that God has to have preeminence in our lives. The big idea today, the, the, the simple, straightforward message is that we shouldn't fear atheism. We shouldn't fear those people who don't fear God as much as we are okay coexisting comfortably with the idols of our heart. In other words, we shouldn't be so against people who are against God while also being okay with those things God are against simply because no one else knows about it. The most painful times in our lives are when God removes idols in our lives, whether they're threatened to be removed or they're actually removed. The God of all comfort is willing to make us uncomfortable so that we would abandon all of our idols and find comfort in Him and Him alone. And they say to churches, and more so probably even to pastors, you want to find a church's idols? Start changing things. Because you know what happens next? Everybody gets in an uproar. When you poke someone in the idols, you start to see their real heart behind everything that happens. Today, four evils that our idols produce in worship. Four evils that idols produce in worship. They produce first off, and Ezekiel is going to give us four pictures as we go through. He's going to show us that idols produce desire over doctrine. What we feel over what we should really believe and how that informs what we feel. He's going to also show us how idols produce an evil of downgrading, watering down, if you will, the things of God over defining what the things of God are. Thirdly, he's going to show us that deception, that, that hoodwinking, that, that, that treachery over distinction, that God's people are not just going to be deceived in this passage, but they're not shining their light as they should because of said idols. And then finally, defiance over devotion, that we are so committed to keeping our things that we are willing to do anything to hold on to them, even if it flies in the face of God openly before others and, of course, before Him. This is another tough passage. Are you on Ezekiel overload yet? Have you felt that way yet? The weight is real, but I promise you there is good news coming. But before we get there, we need to read through this. If you're able to stand, we're going to read uh, 18 verses. I think it's just the right length for, for legs and such for many of you. If you're able to stand and honor the Lord's word this morning, would you stand with us as we read Ezekiel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, reading out of the ESV. Just a reminder, we read the Word of God because Paul told Timothy to always give himself to the public reading of Scripture. Many churches do not do this because it takes time from the, the tight schedule you have, so thank you for the extra minutes to do this. Most of all, thank God for His Word. Starting in verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, as I, that's Ezekiel, sat in my house with the elders of Israel sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked up, and behold, the form that had the appearance of a man, and below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of a brightness like a gleaming metal. Verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. 
And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. He's referring, referring back to chapter 1. Verse 5, then he said to me, this, this man who pulled him up said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abomination that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from their sanctuary, but yet you will see a greater abomination. Notice the, in, the increasing sinfulness as we go through this. Verse 7. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in, verse 10, and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things, loathsome beasts, beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders, the house of Israel, with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of the incense rose up. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in the room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see me, the Lord has not forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Verse 14, then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Yet you will still see greater abominations than these. Verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men, with their backs to the temple of the Lord, there facing towards the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, verse 17, Have you seen this, O son of man? It is, is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Darren, we're Tower View Baptist Church. Jesus is our Savior. Why do we need to hear this? Because we are still people, and we are still people, saved as we be, if we are saved here today, that can still do these very things. Maybe not as blatant, maybe not as upfront as is this, but we still do these things, and our hearts need to be reminded of why God is supreme and why idols are so dangerous. May we be given wisdom today. Will you pray with me as we start? Fathers, we start off today once again entering a very sobering passage. Father, we preach these things to remind ourselves that we need to always keep you in the forefront. Father, we know that, and it's easy to say that, but Father, reality sometimes hit when that's not true. Forgive us, Lord. But Father, as we look at these four different evils that idols produce in worship, would you be glorified? Speak to someone through all of them, through one of them. Father, they're not my words. I pray your word speaks. But Father, be lifted high. That is our prayer. Thank you for Jesus. We pray once again in his name, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Thanks, guys. You may be seated. The first evil that idols produce, the first evil that idols produce this morning are the desire over doctrine, the desire over doctrine. I, I just want to give you a little background before we get more into this, that it has been approximately 14 months, about a year and a quarter-ish, since Ezekiel got the vision back in chapter 1. 
you remember that God gave him a vision in the fifth year uh, of King Jeconiah, uh, Jehoiakim, rather, which was in 593. This is now roughly 592 B.C., if you want to get down to dates. And so it's been a little bit of a while. He went through all those visions 14 months ago, and it's been a little quiet. And now he's sitting around with the other elders. He's like sitting around with the pastors. It's like, you know, every month the uh, Clay Platt Baptist Association, uh, Pastor Nelson gets to go very often to these. We have a, a network luncheon where all the pastors get together and get free Chick-fil-A. That's worth the price of admission right there. But we get together. Imagine just sitting around with a bunch of pastors. But God doesn't just let him have small, you know, hobnobbing type talk. This is going to get really serious. He's talking to these people, and he sees someone. Did you notice this in this first point, desire over doctrine? He sees someone with the likeness of men. Look at verse 2. Who is this guy? Who is this? Is this a mystery man? Is this a masked intruder of the superhero version? Who is this? Verse 2 tells us that this man, he looked, he's sitting around, and then he has a vision, Ezekiel does, and behold, a man in the form of appearance of a man. And he, he had the same vision, you may recall, back in chapter 1. If you'll hold your spot there, just go back to chapter 1, verse 26. I want to remind you of this. It's good if you turn or, 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 or glide across, swipe your phone, whatever you got. Just get to chapter 1 or pull it up in your memory bank. I want to just read chapter 1, verse 26 again. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated upon the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Verse 27, chapter 1, And upward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were like gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. You can go back to chapter 8. Who is this guy? Who is he seeing? It's exactly who he is seeing. He is seeing Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. You say, Darren, how does that work? I'll refer you to our website, Tower View KC. You can listen to chapter 1 again. But this is a version of the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus Christ before he comes to earth, once again visiting him within a vision. And it's a brief description of who Jesus is. It's the same description, and we, don't, we won't go there, but you can read it later, that Revelation 1 says about Jesus himself. So as you look at this, and you be reminded, as he sits around with these elders, these leaders spiritually of the group of Israel, Ezekiel is not just having a daydream here. He's having a God-appointed vision about what is to come. It is both a comfort and a challenge and a conviction, isn't it, to know that our God watches everything we do in a worship service. Isn't that a little scary? Everything we say, everything we do, every hard intention we have, He is there. And it says that as he does this in verse 3, that this man that we believe is the pre-incarnate Christ caught him by a lock of his hair a lock of his hair, and lifted him up between earth and heaven and brought him to the visions of God. So Ezekiel is talking to real people, but in real time, God brings him to these visions. And in verse 3, it says that the first thing Ezekiel was shown was an idol. Did you, did you notice that? It says in verse 3, He put out the form of a hand and lifted me up, and between earth and heaven, and he showed me, skipping a bit here, down to the image of jealousy. There's an idol here. And idols have been commanded against the people of Israel. They're not supposed to have them. 
Back in those days, they had idols they would carve out and all those things. Many of you have traveled. You've seen real-life idols. I shared last week that down in the Hare Krishna Ravidic Temple, uh, Brother Dave, I think you shared that used to be a church that you had been to at one point during your time there. Uh, but th- there's an idol as you walk in there, literally almost 30 feet high in this church. It is scary. It's like walking into an Indiana Jones movie set or something. I mean, it's just weird. But they literally bow down and worship this. Imagine something like that in the front of our sanctuary. This is what so angered God and outraged him that right in his temple was this idol. And according to verse 4, Ezekiel saw the glory of God there. And like he had seen before, Ezekiel literally saw God standing in the midst of all this. And he was jealous, God was, because something else was taking the place of his worship. Their desires had taken over what they knew to be true and believe. And what God does is give Ezekiel the ability to see the evil that he himself, that God himself sees. And he sees that their desire was bigger than their doctrine. Their feelings trumped their beliefs. Their emotions outran what they knew to be true. So what was this? Well, the text doesn't say, but verses 5 and 6 make it pretty clear. Look down there with me. He says that, son of man, lift up your eyes. And so I lifted up my eyes and north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. What was this image? It was probably an Asherah pole. I don't have a picture up there for for you all, but an Asherah pole was something they made that was to be worshipped. The Canaanite goddess of fertility that was set up that they would decorate and make look pretty, that they would dance around in hopes that they might get pregnant someday. And God told them in, in Exodus that they were to have no images, the second commandment violation. God said how he was to be worshipped. And most Westerners have struggled with one another with this picture because, I mean, we don't, God, God, we don't worship statues or totem poles anymore. But what he's telling them is, is that idols come in all shapes and forms. And Amy, you can just put up that whole first little slide there. Let me just give you some things here. Let me give you some words. Idolatry back in those days was always guaranteed. The formula was simple. Carve out a God, make it in your own mind, Make some chance to it, and you're going to be okay. You got a God. That's pretty easy, right? For $19.95 for the purchase of wood and a hand chisel, you can have your own God in your home too if you call this number in the next 50 seconds and do that sort of thing. But idolatry was also selfish. Basically, if you scratch the God of your idol's back, he will scratch yours. It was very selfish. Idolatry was easy. I mean, all you had to do was go get a piece of wood and start chiseling it out. You can, it's kind of like art class when you're in elementary school. No matter what you make, it's going to end up on the refrigerator kind of thing. And that's what it was. You make it, you worship it, you're good to go. It was selfish. It was easy. It was convenient. You didn't have to go anywhere. You just put that idol right up here and woo, woo, you know, do your thing, snap your hands, dance a little jig. You're good to go. You, and you can even take it on the go. If you're a traveling businessman, you just stuff that idol in your camel pouch and you're ready to rock and roll. And idolatry was normal. Everyone did it. Everyone. It's all over the place. And it was logical. I mean, it was just logical. I mean, if my friend's doing it, if I can get benefit out of it, why would I not do it? Obviously, there, there, there were different gods for different things, but everyone's going to do it. So you get this God, I get that God, we're good to go. Idolatry was also pleasing. It felt good. It really felt good. 
If you're going to be especially religious, it helps if you see your God. So they said. It was indulgent. It's like leftover pizza in the refrigerator. It just has to be eaten, right? Whether it's cold or hot, you just got to consume it. And idolatry was sensual, especially in relation to this. And I, we have young ears here, and I won't get into the details of it, but this Asherah pole that was before them, the desire that was there was a good desire. They wanted to populate the land. They wanted to raise up people to continue on their nation. But in order to do that, they committed such lewd acts in front of this pole that God himself could only say, how dare you? It was easy religion. Amy's going to put this up. But I want to remind you that this is a lot of American Christianity today. Let's see what I can get that costs me little. It's easy to do. It's easy to see. It's easy to have a few ethical boundaries. It guarantees me success. It feels good, and it doesn't offend anyone. Welcome to Idolatry 101. Or, to put it in more practical terms, if you want a faith that gets you stuff and guarantees you success, you have the prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, run the list. Or if you want discipleship that's always convenient, you can pop on the internet anytime you want, and there's a guy teaching you about God, but you never have to be accountable to a local church. You can just, you and Jesus can hang out in your underwear all day and be okay with that. Welcome to the virtual church. Or you want a religion that's ritualistic, that's the same thing and does it just because that's what we do, because that's what we were told to do, and there's no heart behind it, there's no truth behind it. Welcome to ritualistic Christianity. Or you want a spirituality that no matter what encourages you for who you are, just be who you are. A recent study came out, LifeWay posted this week, that 47% of pastors now don't believe that homosexuality is a sin, that it's just another thing that God has blessed. Friends, we are living in an age of idolatry to the nth degree. This is not just back in Israel. The whole system of idolatry was guaranteed, selfish, easy, convenient, normal, logical, pleasing, indulgent, and sensual because we don't want to do what God says. Can I just warn us all here in my own heart too? Do not let your feelings inform your doctrine. Do not let your feelings inform how you feel about God. Let God inform you how you should feel about Him. Many people go to church looking for a fill-up. You ever heard that phrase before? Well, I just didn't get filled up today in worship. It's not about you, sir. It's not about you, ma'am. It's about us. It's about Him. Are you supposed to be encouraged when you go to church? May God encourage you. Are you supposed to receive a blessing when you go to church? Yes, but it's not about us. It's about Him. And if we lose that, we are no better than these Israelites who made a poll and started doing things around that poll that would never be named in church. We don't need a Disney faith. Now, we're Southern Baptists, and we boycotted Disney back in 1997. That's not what I'm talking about here. And if you go, we have the Disney Plus at our home, and we talk to our kids about all these things. I'm not a Disney basher, but a lot of people have a Disney faith. Do you know what that is? It's be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. Whatever feels good, what? Do it. You don't have to say it. You know it. Cinderella singing about her dreams and being the true inner princess. Mulan refusing to fit the cultural stereotypes. Ariel longing for a world she was created for. Aladdin becoming the prince he pretended to be. Disney movies and most of the ripoffs tell our kids and tell our faith and tell our folks again and again and again that until you find yourself, you don't have anything in life. Christ says until you lose yourself, you have nothing in this life. May our desires never overtake our doctrine.
look, should you have feelings when you worship? Are we just robotic? Look, Jesus is the way. The Bible is true. Guys, you feel, I feel. Let's, let's worship with emotion. Let's worship with passion. Let's worship with these things. But may they be informed not by what the culture says, but why this book says. And that's where they got off the rails. Because their idol of feeling good got them in a place where they no longer wanted to worship the God who's good above all. It's a scary thing. If you come to church simply to get a fill-up, you've missed the greatest joy. Look, you, coming to church should be your main reason, should be to come to worship God, but you should be encouraging one another. But friends, if the music set wasn't what you liked it to be, if the preacher kept preaching on that, that weird book of Mark and Ezekiel, if you've been here a while, okay. There's something in here God can use to speak to you, and He will. Are you willing and ready to listen? Desire is not bad, but if it takes us away from what we believe, it's not what God intended. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to point number two. Not only the desire over doctrine was an evil their idols produced, but next, the downgrade, the downgrade. Um, you know, we talk about upgrades all the time. You know, Pastor Nelson shared last week when he went on Army duty a couple weeks ago, he had a special assignment. He got upgraded because he was in uniform. I was like, give me one of those uniforms. I'll get first class all the time or however that works. You get upgrades all the time. Uh, this morning, someone bought some food at a restaurant, and they got a free bottle of ketchup instead of packets of ketchup. I think Steve and Judy got that. I mean, you get upgrades all the time. Isn't that nice? Upgrades are nice. But what happens when you get downgraded? Oh, sorry, you paid for a first-class ticket. Get back there and coach. What happens with that? Or you, you call the head for that special table for you and your wife to go out on a date. I'm sorry, you've got to go eat in the back alley, man. This just isn't going to work. Downgrading happens all the time. But look at verse 7. They downgraded how they worshipped God. Look at verse 7. He says, And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said, Dig in the hole. So I dug. And verse 9, he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations. So I went in, verse 10, and there engraved on the wall were all sorts of loathsome things. What is he talking about here? Well, the reality, number one, is they believe that design is more important than holiness. They believe that design trumps holiness. Design trumps holiness. They believe that by painting the walls a certain way with the way they worship, they would feel closer to the false gods that they were worshiping. They believe that their idols all over the walls would make them feel closer to the divine. Yet these were things that God said never to do in Leviticus chapter 11. Do we care more about how the sanctuary looks than we care about how our eyes look before the Lord? Look, let me be clear. We are getting to, ready to enter a stage in the next few months, Lord willing, where we're going to revamp to the glory of God our nursery. Praise God. We were given a very generous gift to do that, and we have extra money saved over the years to knock that out. We want it to look nice. We want it to be used for the glory of God. We want it to be contemporary and modern and classical, however that works. That's why I'm not on the design team, praise the Lord. But may our design never trump our holiness. May how this church looks never overtake how our heart looks before the Lord. Second reality they had that downgraded their worship, took it from where it should be to where it should not have been, is they demanded over discerning. Their demand trumped discernment. Look at verse 11. Ezekiel sees these things happening, and he sees very clearly before them, verse Seven or verse 11, stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Notice he knows the name. He knows who it is. Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke went up. He saw the seven elders of Israel, whom he knew, 
whom he was being trained by, whom he was going to be under if he were still in Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon. He was taken away, and they were participating in idolatrous worship. They were raising things up. They were bowing down. These leaders were responsible for God's judgment upon the people. This is why if you have a secret connection to a religious group, Freemasons, Mormons, any other group out there that is in secret worshiping some other god, it is completely false. You need to, they demanded no discernment. They just wanted it all because it felt good and that's what all the other people were doing. Friends, idolatry will take you to places in secret ways that you'll never want to go. It's not as big as a problem here, but down in the deep south, brother, um, down in Alabama and down in the deep, deep south, there are men especially who will have parts in secret societies where they'll worship Jesus in the morning and they'll go to the secret camps and they'll have special handshakes and wear these funny kind of things that the kids would laugh at, like, is he in a costume or are we taking this guy real? They're called Freemasons. Freemasonry will never line up with Christianity. Do you know why? Because Christianity says there is one God, one way, one truth. And Freemasonry is kind of like the alcoholic anonymous 12-step God. Believe in whatever you want to believe. As long as you name something and it gets you off, you're good to go. These people trumped discernment because they demanded their idols have preeminence. The last reality they had, and you'll notice this here in verse 12, is their depiction trumped their definition. Their depiction trumped their definition. Apparently, each elder had his own little private room. They had their own little private chamber where they could indulge themselves in idolatrous evil and abominable worship. Again, we have young years here. If you're an adult, I don't need to spell this out for you. Do you know what the modern equivalent of that is? Can you fill that gap? Men, I would encourage you, if you do not already, to put a blocker, put a filter, put something on your phone that prevents you or your kids or even your wife, grandkids, from seeing things on your phone, your computer, your iPad, whatever, that they shouldn't be seeing. Did you notice what verse 12 said? It literally says, and they were in their inner chambers. He saw them, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room? This wasn't together. This was a private sin. The pictures they were seeing. Now, were they looking at pictures like we were today in the bad sense? No, but they have a modern equivalent. It is that the eyes of the Lord are watching everywhere. These leaders should have been telling the people to humble themselves before God, but they were bowing prostrate before images and things that they wanted to worship. And I can tell you that any uncensored Internet is one, two, maybe three clicks away from things they should never be in. If our Super Bowl halftime show doesn't show you anything about that, I don't think we need to go too far from the tree. But that's not enough. Verse 13 says it gets worse. Did you notice that? Remember that incremental step? It gets worse. Friends, I'm here to remind us today that the eyes of the Lord, Proverbs 15, 3, are in every place keeping watch over the evil and the good. And if we want to see our church grow as God intends, we must know that He sees all, that He knows all, and is powerful enough over all. Can I just speak a, a pastoral word here today? If you're a man, especially, and ladies, I don't think this. there's about 10% of women statistically who struggle with this. If you're a man who struggles with looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at, come talk to us. Say, Darren, that's shameful. I, 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 what would my wife say? What would the church say? Well, no one said we're going to put it on Facebook. But if you're struggling 
These doors are open for you. We're not experts. We'll pray with you. We'll counsel with you. We'll try and point you in the right direction first to His Word, but to groups that can help with people in the church that can help. Come and talk to us. It destroys marriages. It destroys everything. It destroys everything. They believed that God wasn't definite enough that they had to downgrade it and water it down to a point that He never wanted them to do. Okay, verse 14. They had desire over doctrine. They had downgrade over definition. And the, the third evil idol in their worship was they had deception over distinction. Deception over distinction. Some of y'all are confused by this. I had to look this up. I had never read through the Bible, but I really had never looked into this, this verse. Verse 14. Then he, that, 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 that's the risen, or well, the pre-incarnate Christ in the Spirit brought me to the entrance of the north gate. To the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abomination. Now, if you're like me, and I read through this a few times, I usually do before preparing the text, what in the world is this? This is like something you skip over, right? Like a footnote. Like, who in the world is Tammuz, and what are these women doing? That's a great question. Tammuz was a foreign god, a false god, that was from Babylon. And they believed that this this god or goddess brought the vegetation, brought the food to him. And Tammuz, in the stories of the Babylonians, dies and goes down to Hades and comes back up again every spring. So they were crying because the crops were not growing. These women were sad. We don't have food to feed our babies. We don't have food to feed our families. So they were crying out to this God and waiting for Tammuz to come and bring them food so that they could eat. They were weeping so that Tammuz would return from the dead and cause the vegetation to grow again. God's women were doing this. So here are the Hebrew women of God sitting at the entrance of the temple, and they were weeping and wanting some false god to return from the dead. And that was the horrible thing that he saw. Ladies, I want to remind us especially of this, that don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not just a quote from your mama or your grandmama. That's a quote directly from Scripture. Men, we need to hear this as well. Do not be deceived. This is in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This is where Paul tells the people, don't believe that Jesus hasn't come back from the dead. He has come back from the dead. But don't believe that there's any other God who has come back from the dead. It is Christ and Christ alone who has been raised. But it is far better, far, far better, and Amy will put this up, to be excluded by the world and set apart to God than to be welcomed and praised by his enemies. These women did not trust God to provide, so they did the next best thing they knew or thought they would do best. They were deceived into thinking that if they cried out as a group of women to a false god, that things would get better. Ladies, you could do this simply by going to your friends closer to you than you go to your God when things go south in your life. Your girlfriends become your God. Well, my girlfriend said this, or my girlfriend said this, or my sister said this, or my family of girls said this. Look, those aren't bad things in and of themselves, are they? But if those things become the group that associates you getting away from God himself, then we have lost the connection that they had. They were deceived that they were supposed to be praying to God and set apart to him and being distinct, not praying to all the gods that everyone else does. They were to be distinct and cry out to the God who can revive the dead. Instead, they cried out to a God who was dead. 
Ladies, be careful what you trust in. Men, be careful that we don't lead our ladies astray by letting them trust in things. And they're capable and rational to make decisions themselves. Trust me, guys. But may we not lead them in ways that take them away from the one worship of God himself. Well, maybe if I do this, or maybe if I do that, or maybe if I do that, have you prayed about it? Have you sought his will? Have you tried to say, God, what can you do in my life right now that will restore your distinction in my life? Because, God, I want to be seeking after you. I don't want to be like all these other people who trust in the pop culture, the magazine covers, the whatever else. I want to know that you're my God and you will provide. And that's what these women were basically doing. The culture said, do this. They did it. But God said, ladies, be like 1 Peter 3. Be like the holy women who said, God is my Father, and in Him I will trust. Ladies, I know I'm speaking to many of you who've long since passed thought about such things, but we live in a society where women truly are, um, women truly are taken advantage of in so many ways. Women are objectified. Women are... Ladies, you have been dealt a hand in so many ways that are not biblical. But I pray that you find your greatest worth not in how close you look to the next greatest person on the magazine cover or the next whatever. You find your worth in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Even when the world says you're not beautiful anymore because you've aged or you've got some stretch marks or you've got some wrinkles here or there, God says, I don't care about those things. I care about what's inside you. God looks not at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And may our hearts be set upon him and him alone. And ladies, that's a struggle for you. Because unlike men, you struggle with the heart issues sometimes more than men. Men just get, men just get wrapped up in things. We get dumb-headed. You get all more emotional than we do sometimes, don't you? And that's okay, because that's how you're wired to be. But be careful that you don't, like the first point said, allow desires to overtake you. But men, don't, don't get lost in this. Men, don't let your strength become your greatest weakness. Everything goes back to who God is. Do you trust God to provide, or do you not? Is he enough, or is he? That's really what they had to struggle with. Last point. Four evils, desire over doctrine, downgrade over distinction, deception over distinction, and this one. Woo! You ready for this? Defiance over devotion. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. Ezekiel has seen the increasing thermometer go up of the sin, and in verse 16, he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. So uh, just imagine this. Imagine the stage up here as being the inner court. I mean, this, there's nothing uh, set apart necessarily about this area up here, but imagine this being the spot in modern-day religion. He brought him to the, the biggest point in the temple, and between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord. Catch that right there. When you turn your back on God, everything else goes south, not east. And their faces were towards the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. Do you know what religion does this every single day, five days a week? And I'm not trying to eisegete the text. Seriously, do you know what religion does this five times a day? Islam does. Friends, this is not a prophecy about Islam. This is not a precursor to it. But I want you to see that when people start praying to the east in the sense that they're praying towards the sun, apart from how God has described them to pray, it's there. Well, didn't Daniel pray that? Yes, he did. But he wasn't praying to a false god. He was praying to the one true God. There is a difference. So, Darren, can I pray when I'm driving east on eastbound on I-70? I hope you do. If you've been on I-70 going to Columbia, you know you need to pray every step of that way, right? 
like you're going to get run over. Where's that three-lane highway they promised us, right? Another sermon, another time. But they were so defiant. Do you see that bodily defiance? Their body, it, I mean, it's literally like the cross is here, and they're just like, I don't hear you. I'm looking this way. Talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. That's what it is. These are the leaders of Israel. He counts about 25 of them. The number really doesn't matter. But what matters is he saw them with their backs, and they were prostrate on the ground worshiping the sun. And sun worship ceremonies are still in existence today. People sing hymns to the sun. They dance to the sun. At night, they're immoral in honor of the sun. Sun worship is still practiced by heathens today. I've been, uh, Brother Aaron and I have been over to Stonehenge many years ago, and uh, they'll tell you stories there of what they did back in Stonehenge in England many, many years ago. But if you're going to worship some idol, you know what you do. The first thing you do is you physically turn your back on God, and that's what they did. That is defiance as the greatest thing. When, when someone gets in trouble, what do they usually do? You're talking to them face-to-face, and they cross their arms like what? Hmm. They turn your back. The point here is that you have 70 elders secretly worshiping privately, and now you have 25 men openly worshiping in idleness. This is a disgrace upon disgrace upon disgrace. Amy, you can put up this last little faith lesson here. Hidden, defiant private sins today will be grand public sins tomorrow. I was reading a book by Paul Tripp, and if you don't know Paul Tripp, he's a Presbyterian guy with a mustache that'll beat any y'all's mustaches. Richard, your mustache is from the 70s, I'm sure. You know, he's, he's got like little curls. I, he's got the look still in the 20, 2020s. But one thing about Paul Tripp, he's a godly man. He's a Presbyterian, will disagree on baptism and finer points, but he's a godly man. He wrote a book about 10 years ago called Dangerous Calling. I took a picture of that, and I think I might even still have it on my phone as a, as a quick reference. But uh, I took a picture of that on Thursday because I texted it to a couple friends of mine as I was finishing up the sermon. And I thought it was telling because on that picture, on the picture are the backs of three names that came up. And, and I want to I mention these names, not because I'm better than them, not because I'm unable to sin in the ways they have. Here's the picture of the book, Dangerous Calling. It's well worth the read, by the way. You can borrow my copy if you'd like. Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp. But on the back are five endorsements, very common to be. Daniel Aiken, president of Southeastern, who's still doing well. Daniel Aiken's a godly man. Burke Parsons, who is R.C. Sproul's right-hand man at Ligonier Ministries down in uh, Florida. But then you have three other people. The name I always kill, brother, I never remember Tolian Tuchud, Billy Graham's grandson, who used to be a pastor. Billy Graham's grandson used to be a pastor, and you know what? He cheated on his wife multiple times, and he told his congregation it was okay because God said that was okay. He endorsed this book. Joshua Harris, who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Well, you know what he just did about a year ago? He said, I kiss God goodbye. He left the faith. James MacDonald, formerly of Harvest Church in Chicago, one of the biggest churches in suburban Chicago, was fired because he threatened to kill some of his congregants if they didn't go the way he wanted to go. Three of five men who even 10 years ago were in the prime of their ministry, fallen, fallen, fallen. 
hidden, defiant, private sin today will be grand public sin tomorrow. These 25 that he saw probably started privately in their rooms. God didn't do anything about it. Where's God? Did you know? You remember that? We read that. Well, God can't see me. He doesn't know anything. He's left us. So I'm going to go worship over here. Christian, be very careful that you don't get so comfortable in your sin and your idleness that you don't think that God doesn't see because he does. Church, may we never take anything for granted that happens here at this church because of the fact that God is always watching and seeing. But praise God, we have an advocate, don't we? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, First John tells us, who if we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful and just to forgive us from one of our sins, all of our sins. Praise God. I don't know what your idol is here today. I don't know what it is facing you today. But I pray that if it has started in private and you are okay with how that's going because you look over your shoulder and, yeah, no one's found out about it yet, be very careful. I point out three men, not because I'm better than them as a pastor, but it's a warning to my soul and all of us here today, as it was back then. The greatest threat is not people who don't know Jesus. The greatest threat is that we allow idols in our hearts and we're, we're cool with that. May God smash them big to his glory in our lives. Will you pray with me as we close? Father, as we come before you today, we are just reminded of how, Lord, this, the, Lord, this is such a straightforward lesson. We know anything in front of you is an idol. Father, we can't always live on the top of the mountaintop as Peter did. We can't always live in, in your presence. Father, we can't always live in the, the, as the youth ministers will say, the summer camp high experience or as adults, the, the conference experience we get when we're around other Christians or even the, the week Sundays that we're so encouraged to be here and we should be encouraged. Father, what a joy to be with God's people. Father, we can't live with that all the time, but you do live with us every moment by your spirit in our lives. Father, help us today not to take for granted the fact that your spirit is with us Father, may we not grieve the Spirit, as Ephesians 4.30 says. Father, may we seek to honor you in all our ways. Father, smash idols in this church, including those in my own life, those in this church's life, not to be holier-than-thou people or pharisaical or religious zealots to the point where we lose love and truth or, or vice versa, but, Father, walking in truth and love, may your Spirit show us how we can be more like Christ, humbly, gently, lovingly, openly, truthfully, and honestly. Father, if there's any sin in this church that needs to be confessed, as James 5.16 says, one to another, may you be glorified, may you be lifted high. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for Jesus, that he forgives us. We are so grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Brother.